Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad you decided to dare the possibilities of bad stuff and come out and join us for a discussion of women warriors. Um, today I'm going to tell you about some of my favorite women warriors that you've probably never heard of. I'll tell you a little bit about why you've never heard of them. I'll put them into some general context. And I hope by the end you'll agree with me that it's important that we remember them. Let me start, however, with some reasons why we're having this discussion today. In 1993, a highly respected military historian named John Keegan wrote a book titled A History of Warfare. Time Magazine named it one of the best books of the year, and they described Keegan as one of the century's most distinguished military historians. And this is what Keegan had to say about women and war in the introduction to that book. Warfare is the one human activity from which women, with the most insignificant exceptions, have always and everywhere stood apart. Women have followed the drum, nursed the wounded, tended the field and herded the flocks while the man of the family has followed his leader, have even dug trenches for men to defend and labored in the workshops to send them their weapons. Women, however, do not fight. And they never, in any military sense, fight men. Keegan wrote that almost 30 years ago, but there is still a large number of people who agree with that general idea. And I'm hoping that some of you are going, but, 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 and starting to come up with counter examples in your head. Because even though he was indeed a distinguished historian and A History of Warfare is otherwise an excellent book, Dr. Keegan got this part wrong. Um, women have always gone to war. Women have fought to avenge their families, to defend their homes and cities and nations to expand their kingdom's boundaries, or simply to satisfy their ambition. Now, in all fairness to Dr. Keegan, with some important exceptions, not insignificant ones, women warriors tend not to show up in our history books. For the most part, they've been pushed into the historical shadows, or if they're lucky, they end up in the footnotes. And it's happened for a lot of reasons. You know, at the most basic level, the disappearance of women warriors from history as we learn it is part of our broader tendency to erase women from history. You know, if you look at almost any subject, you're going to find an example of a woman whose contribution has been minimized or dismissed or forgotten. Think of the women whose story was told in Hidden Figures, for example. In the case of women warriors, this tendency to erase women from history, to, to write it as his story, 
is complicated by that idea that Keegan articulated so clearly. You know, our shared cultural narrative tells us that women shouldn't fight and that therefore they have not fought. And so as a result, both the witnesses who record history at the time that it happens, and then later the historians who use those accounts to write about the past, they tend to overlook the presence of women on the battlefield, or they indulge in some twisty thinking to explain it away, or describe it as in fact an insignificant exception. The, well, but she was only there to do fill in the blank. The details of why any individual woman warrior have been forgotten for history really don't matter for what we're doing today, though some of those stories would make your jaw drop. Um, but what's important here is that the effect of all this is cumulative. Military historian David Hay summed this up beautifully. This is the last quotation I'm going to read to you today. He wrote, the assumption that war is something essentially male, be it the apotheosis of masculinity or the incarnation of the patriarchy, has banned the study of the female combatant to academic purgatory. A woman from the Crow Nation named Pretty Shield made that same point in a much simpler form. In the 1920s, she was telling stories about the history of the Crow Nation to an ethnographer. And one of the stories she told was about a woman named the Other Magpie. Now, the Other Magpie served as a scout with the United States Army in the 1870s. And when Pretty Shield finished telling that story, she told the ethnographer, all the women can tell this story, but the men won't talk about it. Now, whether you look at the absence of women warriors in our history books through that lens of academic purgatory, or whether you accept Pretty Shield's admittedly simple assertion that the men won't talk about it, the result is the same. Once you don't believe women warriors exist, it's really hard to see them. My goal in writing my unexpected history was to pull women warriors out of the shadows, to make it a little easier for us to see them. So today what I'm going to do is tell you stories of a few women, who they were, what they did. But first I'd like to give you one caveat. There's a danger in telling women's stories, the stories of historical women warriors in isolation. When you tell one of those stories by itself, it's really easy to believe that she is indeed an exception. And that's a conundrum for me, because the only way this is going to work tonight is if I tell you stories that stand by themselves. So I'm just going to ask for you to keep that idea in the back of your head. That said, let's start, whoops, that's not right. Let's start at the very beginning. Okay. All right, I'll lean in, and if you don't hear me, just let me know. Okay. The earliest evidence we have for a woman warrior comes from a burial mound in the Caucasian region of Georgia, in the Eurasian steppes. It was excavated in 1927, and it dates from the second millennium BCE. 
And just to give you a, a hook to put that on, that's about the same time as the Memorian um, civilization in ancient Crete. That, that gives you a context. Three women were buried in that mound, and they were buried with grave goods that included a bronze sword, iron spearheads, and a horse's head. Now, all of those are items that we associate with warriors from that period. Now, when a, excuse me, a male burial includes weapons, the assumption is always that the man was a warrior. When a woman's buried with those same grave goods, many scholars, men and women, have been reluctant to admit that she might have used those weapons to fight. So they start to speculate on why she might have been buried with male grave goods. Maybe the weapons were simply ceremonial. Maybe they belonged to her father or her husband and were buried with her as a sign of respect. Maybe they weren't weapons at all. Maybe they were kitchen implements. <laughs> this is my all-time favorite, however. Um, this is the Osseberg ship, which was found in Norway in 1904. It was part of the grave goods that were buried with two women, along with weapons and other traditionally male grave goods. And incidentally, they were not buried with any traditional female grave goods, which would include things like earrings and spinning implements. Now, in addition to all the usual ideas that people use to explain this away, one scholar suggested that, in fact, the ship and the weapons had been owned by a man, and he had originally been buried with them, but that later his remains were removed for ritual purposes, and that they were removed so carefully that no traces were left in the earth. <laughs> and all I can say is you've got to give the author of that one credit for imagination. That is not something I could make up even if I wanted to. No one raised these kinds of objections in the case of the women found in the Caucasian burial mound. And that's because their remains showed traces of wounds of a kind that we associate with battle in this period. So that even people who normally would have questioned their status agree that these women were probably warriors. And we don't know anything else about them. We don't know if they belonged to a culture that honored women warriors or if they were, in fact, exceptions in their own time. What we do know is that if you jump ahead a thousand years or more, you start to find more burials of women in the same general area that have all the signs of being women warriors. And in fact, one of the most dramatic examples of these made, made, made the news in recent months. Some of you may have seen this. Russian archaeologists announced that they had discovered a burial mound with four Scythian women in it. Um, they were buried with weapons, with horse equipment, and if you look closely, you may be able to tell that one of them actually has her legs arranged as if she's riding a horse. And that's not accidental. They actually cut the tendons to allow her legs to be placed in that formation. 
the mound dates from about 2,500 years ago. The women ranged in age from about 45 to about 12. And this burial was unusual for a lot of reasons, but it's not unusual because they're women warriors. In fact, at this point, we have discovered about 400 graves of Scythian women, and about a third of those were buried with weapons and show signs of war wounds. It appears that women warriors have been part of the culture of the horse-riding Eurasian nomadic tribes for a long time. And in fact, once you start looking across cultures, we find that tribal cultures and nomadic cultures in general often had a tradition of women warriors. We find examples in Native American cultures, in West African cultures, among the ancient Arabic nomads, the Celtic tribes of Roman Britain. They all had a place for women warriors in their culture. Now I'd like to sidetrack for just a minute and look at this question of gender and grave goods from a slightly different angle because I think it will tell us some important things about women warriors in the past and why we may not have recognized them. Because not only do archaeologists assume that a man buried with weapons was a warrior, until very recently they've assumed that a person buried with weapons was a man. And in fact, a classic example of this made the news in 2017. An iconic Viking warrior who was known as the Burka Man was proven by DNA testing to in fact be the Burka woman. This caused a huge flap in the world of Viking studies. People had assumed that the Burka Man was a warrior for more than 130 years. And not only did they not question it, but they used this burial as an example of what an iconic Viking warrior burial would look like. As soon as it was proven that what we had was a Burka woman, there were a number of archaeologists who began to raise all the usual objections to that conclusion, even though they had never questioned that this was a warrior before. Now, since then, the conversation has gotten broader. You know, archaeologists have started asking some complicated questions about gender and remains, and we're starting to get new discoveries about older remains using the techniques of forensic anthropology. Some of you may have seen this kind of awful picture in the news. This is a woman who Archaeologists always acknowledged she was a woman, and she was often described as probably having been a maid in a Viking household. Recently, an anthropologist was looking at those remains and said, what's that dent in her forehead? Um, forensic anthropologists used facial reconstruction techniques, the same ones that forensic science people will use to put together the face of a victim when it's unknown, and this is what they produced. And suddenly we see that dent in her forehead is actually a pretty horrible head wound. So now this woman, who has always been described as probably a maid, is in fact believed to have fought. 
And I suspect that in coming years we are going to see more examples of women warriors as these newer technologies and new questions are applied both to new discoveries and to remains that already exist in museums and universities. But I don't want to just talk about anonymous remains because I promised you stories. And we do have women warriors where we know their name and their story. And the first one who fits that category is in fact a woman named General Fu Hao. She flourished in Shan Dynasty, China, in the Bronze Age, about 1200 BCE. She was one of three major wives of the Emperor Wu Ding, and she was an accomplished commander in her own right. And in some ways, the reason we know about her is almost as interesting as what we know about her, because typically we know the stories of warriors from the ancient world from sources that are written a long time after the fact, sometimes hundreds of years later. And also, they tend to be written by descendants of the people that she fought against. Now, that means we don't just have to adjust for what happens to a story over time. You know, details fall out, larger-than-life elements get added, which makes it look more like mythology than reality. But we also have to adjust for a certain amount of bad attitude on the part of the people who wrote. You know, there's a lot of trash-talking in the sources about historical women warriors. And I won't say it was all undeserved, because I wrote about some women who would not be a role model for anyone. <laughs> but in the case of General Fu Hao, we don't have to do that because we know about her from a true primary source and one where the writers have no ax to grind. Um, she doesn't actually show up in the traditional Chinese histories of the period, but her name appears on 250 oracle bones, which are the earliest Chinese written records. And then we got later proof that she actually existed in 1976 when archaeologists found a tomb that they were able to identify as belonging to Fu Hao. You know, the oracle bones were never intended to tell a narrative. Diviners used them to help people ask for advice from their ancestors. So they would write a question on the bones, they would expose it to heat, and then they would interpret the cracks that would result from the heat. And in the case of Fu Hao, we have enough of those, enough pieces of her story, that scholars have been able to put together the story of her life and information about her role as a commander. It's clear that she took part in most of the major military campaigns in Wu Ding's reign. And the evidence suggests that she didn't just command her own troops. It appears that she also served as a task force commander, at least the ancient Chinese equivalent of a task force commander, so that in a campaign where several generals were bringing their own armies to the field, she would be the general who was in charge of the campaign overall. And the amazing thing is she's not the only one we know of at least a hundred other women who fought in Shan Dynasty military campaigns. And even though Fu Hao vanished from Chinese history for centuries, the idea 
of a woman warrior did not vanish. We have examples of women who led armies or who fought in armies from as early as the third century BCE to as late as the Ming Dynasty, which ended in the 17th century. Imperial China, a welcoming place to be a woman warrior, but not the only place that was a home for women warriors. We also see a fair number of women warriors in medieval Europe, which, also, which kind of surprised me. And in fact, one of the most successful military commanders in late medieval Europe was a woman named Matilda of Tuscany. Her name actually means mighty in war, which is kind of an astonishing piece of forethought on the part of her parents, because in fact, that's what she turned out to be. But unless you're a serious medieval history buff, you've probably never heard of her, even though she was quite important at her time. And even if you have heard of her, you've probably heard of her in the context of one particular incident, which is called the humiliation at Canossa. Um, in 1077, the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV arrived as a penitent at her fortress at Canossa in the Apennine Mountains. He was there to petition Pope Gregory VII for absolution. Pope Gregory was there because Matilda had been giving him a military escort from Rome to a meeting of German bishops. And when she found that Henry was moving through the mountains, she retreated to her impregnable fortress at Canossa where she would be able to defend the Pope. Now, despite the fact that Matilda's role in this incident is essentially military, it's generally described as that of a peacemaker. She may have been a peacemaker in this case, but if she was, it didn't last for long. <laughs> the, you know, the humiliation at Canossa was this one peaceful, hopeful moment in the middle of a very long and contentious and ugly struggle between the emperor and three successive popes that was called the investiture controversy, which was basically about who got to control the appointment to religious offices and consequently was able to control the wealth and the power attached to those offices. Matilda was right in the middle of it. It was the most important political and theological issue of her time. Now, she was literally right in the middle of it because she controlled a vast swath of land that straddled the main road that led from Rome to the Holy Roman Empire. But she was also right in the middle of it in political and military terms. She provided the main military support to those popes in what was an ongoing 20-year often armed struggle with the emperor. And she didn't just pay for those troops, though she did pay for those troops. She also commanded them. She was at the front lines. She made command decisions. She planned operations. And her military career was not limited to the investiture controversy. She actually was involved in military actions over a period of 40 years. And during that time, she did everything her male counterparts did. Definitely Mahdi in war. I want to move on now to a woman who looks a little different. She was not a military commander. She did not change history. 
This is the Cheyenne warrior Buffalo Calf Road woman. Um, and we know her story because two women who were her contemporaries told it later to ethnographers, which is kind of a recurring theme when you're talking about history of the Native American nations. She fought at what historians of the American West know as the Battle of Rosebud River. The Cheyenne call it the battle where the girl saved her brother. Um, in 1876, a group of Cheyenne fought an American force that was headed by General George Crook. It was part of a three-pronged campaign that was designed to drive the Cheyenne and the Apache out of the Montana Territory. And Buffalo Calf Road Woman was one of the warriors in that Cheyenne force. You know, during the course of that battle, her brother, who also was among the force, had his horse shot out from under him right in front of the Army's infantry lines. Buffalo Calf Road Woman rode through enemy gunfire. Her brother jumped up on the horse behind her. She carried him to safety. That's not the only battle that we know that she fought in. Eight days later, she fought at the Battle of Little Bighorn. General Fuchau, Fuchau, sorry, um, Matilda of Tuscany, Buffalo Calf Road Woman, they all kind of fit our general template for what women warriors might look like. We tend to think of individual heroic women. But in fact, there have been women who fought as part of a unit at the front lines. And one of the most interesting versions of this, at least as far as I'm concerned, came during the First World War. There were desperate manpower shortages. All of the Western powers ended up using women in ways that they had not used them in war efforts before. In the United States, that meant women did jobs that would allow a man to go and fight. In Russia, women actually fought. Between the February and October revolutions in 1917, the Russians formed 15 all-female battalions. And we know that at least one of those units actually went into battle, which was the Women's Battalion of Death, which was headed by Maria Bochkarova. Um, Bochkarova was a Siberian peasant woman, and when the war first, first broke out in 1914, she talked her way into an otherwise all-male unit and fought at the front with that unit openly as a woman for two years. She was highly decorated for bravery. She was badly injured twice. In fact, the second time she was injured so badly that she had to learn how to walk again. And at the point where she'd healed enough that she was ready to go back to the front, she was asked to form the Woman's Battalion of Death. One of the reasons the Russians wanted to form these units was they wanted to raise morale among the male soldiers, which had been increasingly sinking as the war went on. And if they weren't able to raise morale, they at least hoped that those women would shame the male soldiers into fighting. <laughs> so that when they sent the Women's Battalion of Death into the front in July of 1917, they deliberately sent them into an area that was suffering from massive desertions with the hope that they would um, get the guys to buck up a little. 
Um, the women got their first taste of battle on July 9th. Um, the Germans advanced, and the word came down for the regiment that the battalion was attached to, to attack. And nothing happened. One of the other changes the Russians made in 1917 was they formed soldiers' committees with the idea that if men had a democratic hand in leading their own unit, that they would fight better. That never quite worked out as a plan. And when the order came down to fight on July 9th, the men of the regiment called a soldiers' committee meeting because they wanted to discuss whether or not they were going to fight. After several hours of nothing happening except for a lot of conversation, the women got impatient and decided that they were going to attack the Germans whether their male counterparts came or not. They advanced against the Germans, they successfully took two lines of German trenches, and then they held their position against six counterattacks by the Germans before they ran out of ammunition and were forced to retreat. And before they retreated, they had captured two German machine gun nests, had taken a number of Germans prisoner. That included two German officers who were not very happy to be captured by women. You know, I could pretty much do this for the rest of our time together and well into the evening, and it could be kind of fun because there are a lot of fascinating stories, hundreds of fascinating stories about these women. I could tell you, for instance, about the Trung sisters of Vietnam. In 39 CE, they led a successful rebellion against the Chinese who had ruled their country for 150 years. There's Kit Kavanaugh, who's otherwise known as Mother Ross. She enlisted disguised as a private, and she fought in the British Army for 14 years, and she only left the army after she was badly wounded in 1706, and the nature of the wound meant that her disguise was revealed, and once they knew she was a woman, she was forced to leave. Or if we were interested in women who don't have to disguise themselves to fight, this is a member of the all-female regiments of the West African Kingdom of Dahomey. Unlike those Russian battalions, these regiments were not a one-shot deal. They existed from the 17th through the 19th century, and at their height there were about a thousand well-trained, full-time women soldiers, and the men who fought against them that left records make it clear they were pretty fearsome. Or there's Juana Azurdhui, Azurdhui de Padilla. She fought in the Latin American Wars of Independence in the early 19th century, and when she retired at the end of the war, she held the title of the rank of Lieutenant Colonel. Or Nikon. Nakano Takeko, she led a group of 30 samurai women in a forlorn hope attack against the Japanese Imperial Army in 1868. For returning to Russia, we have three regiments of highly decorated Soviet fighter pilots and bombers who fought in World War II. But instead of just telling you more stories about 
individual heroic women. I'd like to end with a group of women warriors that I really didn't expect. These were women who helped defend a besieged city. You know, I started out assuming that I was in fact going to write about women in sieges, but I was expecting to write about high profile individual heroines and noble women who helped organize the defense of a besieged castle. And I did write about those women because you find them in many times and many places and they deserve to be remembered. But to my surprise, it turned out that the most common type of women warriors throughout history were ordinary women who fought to defend their homes. In the fourth century BCE, a Chinese statesman named Yang Shan called them the army of adult women. And he urged military commanders to use them to the fullest extent possible in helping defend a besieged city. And in fact, women have helped defend besieged cities for as long as there have been cities under siege. You know, over the centuries, those armies of adult women have outnumbered many times over the warrior queens and the commanders and the women who fought disguised as men and the women who fought undisguised alongside men. And yet they are the most forgotten of forgotten women warriors. You know, even when they appear in a historic account of a specific siege, their contributions are often dismissed. And that in part is because often the jobs they did could be seen as an extension of traditional gender roles. You know, they cared for the wounded. They carried food and drink to the people who were fighting on the wall, which is a really dangerous job. You don't want to underestimate how much courage that takes because the other people who are on the wall have weapons to defend themselves but the woman who's coming with the basket of bread or the bucket of beer she's got no way to defend herself they helped build fortifications and at the day's end they helped rebuild fortifications that had been damaged during the day's fighting and those jobs were critical but they weren't the only jobs that women did in sieges at the Siege of Leningrad, for instance, in World War II, which is often considered one of the worst sieges in history, women dug anti-tank trenches, and they built and manned machine gun nests, and they threw Molotov cocktails under approaching tanks, which I understand doesn't really do much to stop a tank. Um, but if that's the only thing you've got, you use what you have. And it also requires getting really close to that advancing tank. And they also patrolled their city in an effort to keep order within the city, armed with rifles, often at the end of a long day spent in the munitions factory, where they took the place of men who had already gone to the front. Sort of Rosie the Riveter, but with the twist that at your lunch hour you get drilled with a rifle and taught how to shoot. And in the days before mechanized warfare, when wars were fought on or at the city walls, women threw things down on the besieging army. We don't think of that as warfare today, but for much of history, that was an accepted military technique. We see it as early as ancient Assyria and as late as early modern Europe. And if attackers got closer yet, 
Some women picked up weapons and they fought alongside the city's male defenders. And they had every reason to do that. Now, early modern Europe, there's this recurring metaphor for the fall of a besieged city as a rape. Well, that metaphorical rape of a besieged city often ended with the literal rape or death of women who were its inhabitants. They had every reason to fight. One of my favorite examples of women defending a besieged city comes from the 5th century BCE, when the Greek poet Telesila led the women of Argos in defending their city against the Spartan army. Now, at the time, Sparta was the prominent power in the region we know as Greece. They had either conquered or made alliances with most of the other city-states. And in 494 BCE, they attacked the last remaining independent city-state, which was Argos. The Spartans quickly defeated the Argive army, and the few Argive soldiers who were still standing fled and took sanctuary in a sacred grove. Um, it turned out the Spartans didn't feel quite the same way about sanctuary that the Argives did, so they pursued them, they burned that grove to the ground, and there were no survivors. And with the Argive army destroyed, the Spartan king led his men to Argos, where he expected the inhabitants to surrender, which isn't quite what happened. Inside the city walls, Telesila called on the women of Argos to defend their homes and their children. And under her leadership, they armed themselves with whatever weapons their men had left behind, with the ceremonial weapons from the city's temples, with the Bronze Age equivalent of cast iron skillets and carving knives. And then they followed her to the city walls and they waited for the Spartans to attack. And when the Spartans broke through the city gates, the Argive women fought ferociously. In fact, they fought so ferociously that finally the Spartans retreated. And they never attacked Argos again. That's not quite where the story ends, though. When the battle was over, the surviving Argive women buried those who had died in defense of their city along the road that led to the city gate. And then the survivors built a monument commemorating their own actions. It's a little bit like those World War I monuments that stand in town squares all across the United States. And the fact that they built a monument commemorating their own deeds is actually my favorite part of their story. Because one of the things that holds true for women who defended cities and sieges across the centuries is we don't usually know their names. Even when we remember them, we tend to remember them as a group rather than as individuals. Now, obviously that isn't always true because I just told you a story about Telesila. We know her name and story. But we know them because she was already a poet of some renown in the classical world. The two women whose pictures are now on the screen 
also are remembered. And they're remembered because they were commemorated in their own lifetimes on, a broad, on broadsheets. Um, and then those broadsheets have survived. It's a little bit like having your picture on a supermarket tabloid. The woman on your left is Geshe Maiberg. She was known during her lifetime as the maid of Brunswick. And when her city was under attack, in 1615, she stood on the fortifications and fought with a sword and a musket and urged her fellow citizens on in the city's defense. The woman on your right is Kino Simonstochter Hesselar. She was a middle-aged Dutch businesswoman who formed a group of women together to defend the city of Harlem when the Spanish attacked it in the mid-17th century. You know, when I first told people I was working on a book about women warriors, almost everyone said, you mean like Joan of Arc? And to be honest, at first I did, at least in part. And I certainly discuss a lot of women in the book who are individual heroic figures and deserve to be remembered. But in many ways, it is these anonymous, often overlooked women who fought to defend their homes, who are the real archetype for women warriors, an early female version of citizen soldiers, as you will. In 1621, a French chronicler was writing about the siege of a city during his lifetime, and he wrote, the women demonstrated their usual courage. Think about that for a moment. The women demonstrated their usual courage. That's an extraordinary comment, given that we tend to think of women warriors as Joan of Arc rather than G.I. Joan. And in fact, you can argue that many of the women that I write about are exceptions in their time and place, whether they were queens or revolutionaries, saints, patriots, or poets, or individual women, ordinary women, doing extraordinary things in times of crisis. As long as you focus on one historical figure or one cluster of women or one time period, it's easy to believe that any individual woman warrior was indeed an exception, who didn't just stand outside the norm of her own time, but outside the norm of history as a whole. After all, there's only one Joan of Arc. And the women who disguised themselves as men in order to enlist in any given war are statistically insignificant, though that's just painful to admit. And the circumstances that led women to fight at Argos or Leningrad were desperate. If you look at women warriors in isolation, it's easy to accept the way in which the accomplishments or sometimes even the existence of a specific woman warrior are dismissed. But when you step back and look at women warriors across the boundaries of geography and historical period, larger patterns appear. Not just in the stories of the women themselves, but how those stories are told, and more importantly, maybe, the way they're not told. But the main thing that struck me when I looked at women warriors across cultures rather than in isolation, was how many examples there are and how lightly they sit on our collective awareness. 
you can say, and some people have said to me, what does it matter if a few sets of remains are misidentified or some obscure woman didn't make it into the history book? It doesn't change what we know about history in any fundamental way, except it does. Here's the deal. If you leave women warriors out of the historical records, then it's easy to say that women do not fight and to not notice their contributions on the battlefield. If we don't show up in the history books, then it's easy to forget that women calculated rocket trajectories for NASA or were instrumental in discovering DNA or painted in the Renaissance, or deciphered code in World War II, or printed the first copies of the Declaration of Independence to be distributed. Looking at historical women warriors is important, not just because they give us a context for our ongoing discussion about women in the modern military, but because they're part of what journalist Rachel Swaby calls a hidden history of the world. If you put half the women, half the population back in the story, you get a very different history. Thank you.